Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carbonell and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I sit down with Kevin Kang to discuss finance and investing, portfolio management, household economics, and much more. Kevin is a financial economist and the head of active and alternative research at Vanguard's Investment Strategy Group. Our conversation focuses on the main areas of Kevin's research, including active portfolio management, portfolio construction, direct indexing, tax-aware investing, retirement, and household finance. Kevin is doing a lot of interesting research on these topics and thinking about how to apply them in the real world for investors at Vanguard. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Vanguard's Kevin Kang. Hi, Kevin. Thank you very much for joining us today. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. You have an interesting and diverse set of investing-related uh, research spanning from active management and portfolio construction, tax-aware investing, direct indexing, and then retirement research and sort of like personal or household finance. And there's a lot to uncover in each of those topics, um, but we're going to try to sort of use the research that you've been putting out, which is excellent, um, sort of as a springboard for the discussion today. And hopefully that arc is where we can sort of get into the details um, on some of this stuff. Uh, and by the way, Kevin's uh, most of Kevin's research can be found on his personal website. It's kevinikang.com. We'll put a link to that um, in the show notes so people can access any of uh, those papers. And so, yeah, so so thanks again, Kevin. This is going to be a really great discussion. Wanted to um, just talk a little bit about your career path, I guess, um, and how you got to where you are at Vanguard. So you are currently the head of active and alternative research within Vanguard Strategy Group. So can you just talk a little bit about sort of your path to that role? I was an econ major in undergrad and really enjoyed um, just the whole discipline uh, of economics. And so pretty early on figured that, um, you know, I would basically go all the way in terms of training, academic training. So um, it was a, almost a no-brainer that I ended up um, in a grad school at Northwestern um, doing economics and finance, pursuing uh, that at the grad level, graduate school level. And then... Um, Met a number of really wonderful mentors there, um, but then increasingly over the course of that sort of a graduate student, graduate studies career, felt that um, academic research is, although it's very rigorous, um, the connection to the real world and the kind of impact that you can have with academic research was always a bit more tenuous than just I'd like to, to be personally. And then now kind of looking back with the benefit of hindsight, I feel that um, um if you kind of stay in that academic track, then you can have a lot of impact later on as a, you know, as, as a consult, consultant for policymakers and, you know, in other capacities. But at the time coming out of grad school, um, my interest kind of had firmed up that I wanted to be in the real world, so to speak, outside of academia and kind of look for a place where I can apply the research um, kind of capabilities that I had, you know, just gotten better at uh, through graduate, graduate training. So, with that, um, I landed um, in this, you know, maybe not the best known industry called economic consulting. So um, what that what that is, is, you know, you're basically doing bespoke empirical research within the context of commercial litigation, um, so usually behind the closed doors, um, or pretty large scale government driven uh, regulatory investigations. So um, you're dealing with a lot of um, typically big name corporations. Um, again, in that setting. And then, so that's, I spent a few years there uh, doing that consulting and um, um, eventually wanted to um, kind of switch out of there and transition into the buy side um, where I could actually apply the research skills as well as just empirical finance background um, in a in a more um, maybe actionable uh, setting. So since then, I've, before coming to Vanguard, I spent a number of years with Say Street Global Advisors um, and, and then briefly with BlackRock before um, coming to Vanguard uh, to join the uh, quantitative equity group as a risk manager. And that was, that was six years ago. So I've been with Vanguard about, for about six years. So within Vanguard, I've switched the group once. So um, now it's um, no longer the quantitative equity group that I'm part of. It's the investment strategy group, which is the internal think tank uh, within Vanguard. So 
we kind of lead the thought leadership work, uh, which is why, you know, as you mentioned, I do a decent um, amount of research in my day job. Um, and also we serve as an internal sort of a consulting uh, organization within Vanguard. How do you pick your areas of research? Is it more like internally driven, you're identifying these areas and then you're investigating, or is it driven by sort of questions you're getting from others at Vanguard on areas that you that they are interested in having you research? Because you've kind of carved out like these four or five, you know, main areas that you're focused on. And maybe that'll expand over time. Yep. But just how do you determine where you're where you're spending your time and research on? It's kind of all of the above, and and just kind of it depends on the season, um, I guess that we're in. So, you know, one of the reasons that um, I think we're going to cover this in a little bit, but one of the reasons that I've been um, pretty productive in the taxless harvesting area is because, um, you know, Vanguard as an enterprise was interested in understanding that, um, you know, a little better. So. So that there is a sort of a strategic element um, and force behind understanding, you know, some of these topics. And then I think uh, for me, um, I also just kind of have a running list of questions that I'd like to answer, you know, if I have the time and, and resources. So, so that list is always evolving. And um, so for me, it's sort of a combination of the two. So the part of it is just my formal mandate uh, coming from the role that I have and then um, the other part is usually I, when I, whenever I work on a project, I try to um, kill more than one bird um, with that particular project. So I look for an angle. Can I can I bring this other maybe related set of questions into this particular research project? And so that's I, I try to um, kind of in a way try to maximize you know give an opportunity that way. We've had a bunch of people who have published research papers in the podcast, but what struck me when I was preparing for this is I don't think we've ever talked about that actual process, what it looks like. Yeah. And I know it can be a pretty extensive process from coming up with an idea to writing something to maybe eventually getting it published in a journal. And I'm wondering if you could just talk about those steps and kind of how long it is and what's involved in it. Yeah. So I feel like a typical research project maybe takes anywhere between, um, I think a good number is about six months to kind of go from the conception stage of the idea to actually then kind of think of a research design, uh, which is basically, you know, at that point you're making a bunch of decisions. Like, do I want to go with a simulation? Do I want to go with a backtesting? Do I want to go with um, more kind of empirical, like at the investor level data? Or do I want to go with something else? So, so I think th those are there, are, there are a number of decisions that I think we, we probably just don't even think about it when we make those decisions, but those are like, it's a long list of decisions. I think once, when, once you try to like, codify it um, and then just turn it into process. So those decisions are made reasonably early on and they I think that's actually that's actually maybe an underappreciated area um, for the success of research because I think if you make don't make the right decisions at that time and, and I've made plenty of you know not so great decisions, then you kind of like go down the wrong end uh, or wrong path or the dead end and then you don't end up learning much. So but that's that's the initial maybe I want to say in the first three innings of the research, and then you it's followed by maybe a few months of um, just uh, pure execution, um, and then and then you'll have the results. And I think at that point, once you have the results, there's a decent amount of feedback loop that goes on between looking at the results and then is this really are these really answering the question that we had in the beginning? And again, oftentimes I feel like half the time the initial thinking that I had or the hypothesis I had are wrong, um, or at least they're not very right uh, in light of the results. So there's a decent amount of just refining your thinking that goes on with it. Um, so the way I look at research is it's a journey and like it kind of comes with the um, emotional aspect because because there will there always inevitably, uh, you know, time or even a month where you kind of feel like you're stuck on a, on a particular part of the research and, and you're not really seeing the end of it. But um, Eventually, if it's a successful project, then you'll get through that. And then so um, anywhere between six to six months to a year is what I think is a, a decent amount of time to finish the research, turn it into a writing and then um, and then iterate it a, a few times. So that's um, that's kind of the typical estimate I have for a project. How do you think about the publication part of that? So 
I guess you have to kind of decide, do I want to submit it to a journal? Which journal do I want to submit it to? And then from what I've heard, the editing process with the journals can be a very challenging one and a lot of back and forth. How does, how does that part work? Um, so it, it, so within the kind of practitioner journals um, that I typically submit um, our work to, there is actually a decent amount of variation. Um, and and I meaning, meaning the editing process and the, the refereeing process actually has a decent amount of variation, at least in my personal experience. So, you know, on some papers I submitted, I heard back reasonably, reasonably quickly, and then they turned into publications, um, again, within probably just a matter of maybe half a year, um, which, which, which strikes me as a pretty speedy. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you know, I, I had waited for more than a year, uh, back and forth with the referees. So to me, that, that again, and then, then it took additional probably like six or seven months for it to actually come out um, to be in print. So that's there's a reasonable, I feel like, amount of range. And then um, in terms of you know where do we decide to submit it to, we kind of feel like you know I think I think our strategy is just kind of understand what the journal is about and who the kind of readership is and how engaged they are, and then just depending, it's a function of our understanding of what we want our work to be, um, our paper to be, and then what kind of impact we'd like to ultimately have. So that's how we, uh, what we try to factor in. You mentioned your work on tax loss harvesting, and you know, that's how we actually found you. We found you in a Wall Street Journal article uh, about your paper, Tax Loss Harvesting, a Portfolio and Wealth Planning Perspective. And you know, a lot of people know that there are benefits of tax loss harvesting, but a lot of people don't div- you know, take a deep dive down to understand like where those benefits are coming from. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if you just a high level, can you talk about your research in that paper and what you found? Yeah. So, um, taxless harvesting. Well, maybe, 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 I'll, maybe I'll take a step back and then just talk about taxless harvesting, what it is. Um, sure. um, you know, briefly. So taxless harvesting. I think the idea is, um, you know, like I think the the idea is to simply put it, um, if the life gives you a lemon, then just make a lemon. I think that's really what taxes harvesting is, you know, in its essence. So if you're owning a risk asset that you think is going to appreciate, so for me, the best example is S&P 500, broad-based U.S., you know, equity index. Um, you know, we, I think we all believe and know that it's, uh, I don't know if we know, but we, I think generally believe that it's going to over time appreciate. Um, and, and most people have that conviction, otherwise they wouldn't be in that investment. But as it goes up, um, certainly, inevitably, there will be periods where it's actually underperforming. And not only is it not a, not only is it underperforming, it's probably there are times where you have unrealized losses. And it's in those moments where you could. Um, there are a couple of things one one can do. Um, number one is just basically don't panic and then realize that um, it's all part of the journey. Hold on to it, and eventually you'll just ride it out the volatility. But the other part of it is. Um, as you do that, and as you kind of don't lose sight of that long-term investment objective, um, except that the losses could be used um, to offset some of the gains that you have on some other part of your balance sheet. And that's basically what taxes harvesting is. You're kind of banking losses along the way uh, of an appreciating asset. Just to kind of give you a quick uh, rundown of the list, the return environment um, so that is, generally speaking, is it an upward trending environment or downward trending or sideways, um, as well as the volatility uh, environment, turn out to be really, really important factors um, in terms of how uh, much efficacy you can kind of get out of taxes harvesting. And um, those are also admittedly kind of beyond any investor's control, right? But we just work with what we have. Um so the other factors that are just as important are basically the invest, investor profile, investor characteristics. So are you a high tax rate person? Is your ordinary income tax pretty high right now because of your income level or not? Um, are you able? Are you someone who's able to continue to um, invest, like add more invest, add more cash flow, and invest into this risk asset along the way, or is this you know is this more of a one and one and done? kind of investment. That's another important factor. Um, and then most importantly, um, how much capital gains do you actually have on the side that you could use the losses you're going to harvest um, with taxless harvesting with? And that's that turns out to be kind of like the biggest predictor of um, your taxless harvesting benefit. 
Yeah, that's something I think a lot of investors miss is, you know, we're realizing all these losses, but if there's no gains, then, you know, they're, they're not all that valuable to us. You know, they can only be taken a small amount every year. Correct. You know, I think a lot of people miss that. They want to like realize losses and realize losses and, you know, they, they forget that other part of the, of the equation. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, that's why, I, and, and they kind of, again, maybe this is where, um, you know, the fact that I'm doing research with a, with a great co-author here at Vanguard, um, I think probably had an impact on the way that paper came out because the work that we do, we always have to kind of think back on, like who who are we doing doing it for? And at the end of the day, it's the individual investors. Um, just that's that's part of the firm's DNA. And looking at the whole taxes harvesting from that point of view just really uh, crystallized that point for us. Um, whereas I think in the past in the literature, most people had just assumed that you know oh yeah you have an unlimited amount of capital gains to offset, um, which I think can you know it can be the story for uh, mutual fund like tax managed mutual fund management story. Yes, you will have a lot of capital gains to offset, especially if there are a lot of outflows. But when it comes to the individual investor um, level balance sheet, that's a, it's a completely different story. So we we think that's a really important factor. Um, and we think that should, you know, that thinking should really figure into deciding how much you want to kind of allocate to taxless harvesting to begin with. Yeah, I think that's a cool thing about doing the research at Vanguard is, you know, a lot of times in an academic environment, the real world doesn't come into it that much. Correct. And, you know, so things get missed in academic papers that kind of are, are not the way people apply these things in the real world. But by, by doing it at Vanguard, you know, you're sort of bringing them both together, the real world and the academic environment. Yeah. In your white paper on this, you, you have a, a chart that's called the relative importance of TLH uh, alpha drivers. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if, I don't know if you have it in front of you, but I'm wondering if you could just walk through these because I think this is really interesting. You, you've got a bunch of these different things here um, sort of in their relative importance. So the relative importance of uh, TLH alpha drivers, it, it just really quantifies um, kind of what I had mentioned earlier. So the I think it shows that average return environment turns out to be um, driving about 25% of all the variation in taxes harvesting. And that's so true. So maybe just to kind of contextualize a little bit, um, imagine someone who uh, maybe had $100,000 to invest in S&P 500 and then with the intention of basically taxes harvesting. And then let's let's just do a thought experiment. That person starts investing, you know, put all of that money to work um, in the beginning of 2000, like year 2000, just before the dot-com bubble burst. Um, compare that person with somebody who does the same exact exercise in 19 in the in the beginning of January 1993. So, I, ma I imagine you both are very familiar with. The, the next 10 years, uh, what they're going to look like for the two individuals. The person who started in 2000 is going to go through the next three years basically having a non-stopping taxes harvesting opportunities, up and down, up and down, generally down, but then up and down, up and down. So you're going to be constantly pushing the cost basis down because you're going to be taxes harvesting so much. And by the end of the third year, so basically by the end of 2003, if you look at your portfolio, it's going to be basically like it's going to be the cost basis. There's no, they will, there will have been, you know, no gain, um, get no capital gains because it's been a bear market. And then you will have harvested about 30 to 40% of your initial investment um, in, in losses, which is phenomenal at the end of the third year. Imagine that person basically then translating, offsetting all the all, all the capital gains they will have, and turning that um, investment into, you know, reinvesting it back into the um, S and P 500 in 2003, coming out of the bear market. The returns are going to be phenomenal because now the market's actually you know reverting back to the mean, which you know with with, with some pretty high returns. So that person's um, taxless harvesting alpha will in many cases, be over 200 basis points annualized, just because it, it was a wonderful time to be taxes harvesting, generating losses in the very beginning, and then coming out and kind of catching a very strong reversal, um, you know, reverting market back to the mean. Compare that person to the 1993 person who uh, will basically invest the money and um, live for the next seven years, a very boring volatility like testing single digit S&P 500 um, but generally a strongly appreciating market that person's you know that person's not going to have um, 
much of an opportunity to tax this harvest to begin with. It's going to be much more limited. Um, it's not going to be as much as the 2000 person, year 2000 person. And then as a result, taxes harvesting um, alpha will be more muted. So the return environment turns out to be one of the most um, important kind of drivers for the determining the scope and impact of taxes harvesting to begin with. Um, so volatility and return environment, I would say, kind of collectively account for almost half, a little less than half. Um, and then the other, the remaining um, part is all driven by the individual characteristics. So it'd be, again, how high your tax rates are um, that you can apply your losses um, to ter- translate them to um, tax savings. And it'll also um, be around your cash flows. Like, can you actually continue to refresh and renew higher cost bases? Uh, because there's a difference between someone who just basically invests once and then not, um, and then that's the end of it, versus someone who actually continually renews the cost basis. Um, and um, and then and then again, most importantly, your um, total amount of um, capital gains that are coming from other sources of balance sheet that you can actually put your losses to work. Yeah, you know, it was interesting. We started doing some tax loss harvesting for like we had a couple of new clients that we did it for in 2022. And yep. that was actually an amazing time to start doing it. You know, you had you had these market losses. And, yep. You know, who knows what the future returns will look like. Sure. But, you know, going back to your original point, you know, two things had to be true. Now, number one, we got a great we got a down year to start. But for people who don't have those gains, you know, then the, the value is not going to be realized right away. So it's, it's just interesting. There's there's so many factors that go into this that people have to consider and they sometimes miss them. Yeah. No, no, I agree with it. And I think the, um, that's, I mean, from a, from more from a financial advisor's point of view, and even just an individual investor's point of view, that the whole timing issue, I think, is another interesting thing. Some people, especially um, if they are kind of closer to the ultra high net worth, just, just balance sheet, capital gains rich um, kind of folks, um, if we're kind of talking about that segment of individual investors, Generally speaking, they have a steady sort of a source of capital gains flowing through from some other places, right? Um, compare that person to someone who just basically generally has a kind of generally a W-2-based uh, income, right? Labor income, and they don't have a ton of capital gains unless capital gains are distributed from their, um, you know, maybe active fund holdings um, or something like that where the capital gains distributions tend to be a little more pro-cyclical, um, we're talking about two very different types of investors and, and the taxless harvesting, the way, the speed, the rate, the pace at which the tax loss losses that are going to be harvested in these bear markets um, get translated back into the investment will be different between those two types of investors. I guess a good logical progression from tax loss harvesting is the idea of direct indexing. And, and you've written some stuff about that as well. You know, that that's becoming a big thing now for investors. You know, you, you see, you're seeing a huge increase in people using those types of strategies. And you had written an interesting paper where you looked at the difference between using individual securities versus using something like sector funds um, for direct indexing. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you found there. When we took a look at the sort of landscape of the industry of direct indexing, there was actually a surprising amount of variation. Uh, in terms of how it was being implemented. So direct indexing typically is understood as, you know, instead of owning a commingled vehicle like S&P 500 ETF, you're actually owning the individual ingredients, individual single name securities that make up that, you know, particular index you're interested in. Um, and the way it's typically implemented is um, you are holding an optimized portfolio. So, so if, again, if it is if the universe that you're interested in is S&P 500, then you're not exactly owning all 500 securities. You're owning maybe 150. Um, and the tracking error of that, your direct holdings um, to S&P 500 ETF would be pretty minimal uh, to start with. So that's the way it's typically implemented. But then when it comes to taxes harvesting, there is a decent amount of variation in terms of how often people actually check for losses. Um, so some folks would do more frequently than some others. Um, as well as the granularity of your holdings um, with which you're doing the taxless harvesting. So instead of owning, for example, 150 securities to, um, in a way, track S&P 500 um, index, um, sometimes people would be owning just sector uh, funds or ETFs. So given the variation, you know, along both margins, we basically decide to look at, okay, 
um, what difference does it make when it comes to taxes harvesting um, efficacy with both? So for the frequency of scanning for losses, we, we went from um, annual, and I know that maybe sounds very slow moving, but then it's actually, I think, practiced by some, some um, in the you know, investment management industry, so it's, not, it's relatable. So annual to quarterly to monthly to daily. And when I say daily, it's not daily harvesting, although it could happen in times like last year where it's a lot of volatility up and down. Um, it's just basically daily scanning, just so that you're not missing an opportunity that may be a little more fleeting. Um, and that may not be there if you were to check it monthly or quarterly. So that's the kind of, you know, how often do you check for losses? And then the other piece was around just a granularity, again, from a commingled fund, um, where the only source of volatility for loss harvesting is time series. In other words, if you bought an S&P 500 for 100 bucks, um, you know, it, it needs to go below that 100 um, in order for you to actually tax this harvest. And then, you know, the only way you could do that is basically for that ETF to actually go down in value as, as a collection um, versus, again, owning an, an individual securities that make up S&P 500. Um, so what we found is that um, compared to the sector funds-based uh, taxless harvesting, um, using the individual securities, um, so that's the more granular piece, and then exploiting the idiosyncratic volatility that individual securities have um, to taxless harvest can add uh, north of 50 basis points, um, additionally, maybe about 60 basis points of uh, additional alpha uh, to taxes harvesting. So that was a sort of a substantial enough difference. In terms of the frequency, we also found that um, the ability to check for daily losses um, over monthly and quarterly, uh, especially over quarterly, could potentially add additional 25 basis points. So those were kind of the quantitative aspects of what we found. Um, I, I, like having found those, I still think the most important insight from that work is that it's actually um, when the differences in methodology make the most difference. So um, it turns out that, you remember the 1993 um, person scenario that we we're just kind of touching on, like the person who was going to start doing taxes harvesting without knowing that the next seven years ahead was going to be just a very low volatile kind of, you know, high appreciating market. Um, from that person's point of view, that those are the environments when taxless harvesting with what I would call the um, industrial grade strength. So basically checking for losses on a daily basis and then with individual securities um, matters the most because those are the environments when volatility are just hard to come by. And those are also the environments when, generally speaking, from all of your other financial assets, you have a lot of capital gains distributions. So the marginal value of loss harvest that you can have, which is hard to come by, is actually greater. Um, and, those are, and those are the moments where checking for losses on a daily basis is kind of like of a lot of value because just because you're seeing that potential real, uh, you know, realized, realized losses, unrealized losses today, it doesn't mean it's going to be there, you know, two weeks later when it, when it may have been your time to, to, you know, check it if you're doing it, um, you know, at, at the monthly frequency. So to me, that, that insight was um, kind of just as valuable as the um, quanti quantification of what additional value, you know, these different modes give you. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how far this stuff has come. Like, I remember back in the day, you know, people on like December 15th or whatever would just, you know, realize their losses for the year and move on. Right. But like now, you know, if you think about something like 2020, you know, you use that annual year end approach, 2020 never happened, basically. You Correct. know, you weren't able to realize any of those losses from that major decline. So, yeah, yeah I could see how frequency is a, is a big, big driver here. Yeah, I mean, 2020 was another uh, great example. And then I think I think in a, in a very similar vein, 1987 um, is kind of like, you know, it's kind of the same boat where... You had a you had a window um, in, in the middle of the sort of a calendar year, and then by the end of the year, it was gone. How do you think about direct indexing in general? It just seems like there's a wide range of opinions on it. You know, you've got people who are proponents of direct indexing that say, you know, you're getting one two percent of tax alpha. Then you've got people on the other end saying, you know, the ETF is the most tax efficient vehicle in the world. Like eventually, 
you know, you might get that tax alpha at the beginning with direct indexing, but eventually it's eaten away by fees and stuff. And, you know, you end up better off in the ETF. And I'm sure this is very case dependent on every individual person, but I'm just wondering how you think about that. So I think, think if I, if I'm, if I heard your uh, question correctly, I think it's sort of like on one hand, there is that alpha figure, right? TLH alpha figure, you know, north of 100 basis points, which I think is a pretty fair number. And then, um, uh, on the other hand, there's a question of what people call ossification, which is at some point, you know, your portfolio kind of loses the, or, you know, has a very, you know, its ability to generate losses basically, um, uh, plateaus. There's a couple of things. One is, um, cash flow, the role of cash flow. I think it's very important. And then the other one is, you know, direct indexing, maybe not thinking about direct indexing in isolation, but thinking about direct indexing in combination with all these other potential ways to be tax efficient. So maybe, maybe let me start with the cash flow piece. It works at continually renewing cost basis of your investment. Then I feel like a lot of these um, concerns around um, the plateauing effect of taxes harvesting are not as relevant. Um, you will continue to have enough of um, investment with high enough cost basis relative to where the market is to be able to um, get enough benefits from taxes harvesting. Um, so that's that's number one. I think the other piece around more of a thinking of a taxes harvesting and direct indexing in a more holistic sense um, Again, this may not apply to everybody, but from an individual you know, investor standpoint, if they combine that with, for example, gifting, um, then you know, it can actually work pretty, uh, pretty beautifully. So what you would want to do is you would basically want to gift um, some part of your holdings that actually have um, the most embedded gains and therefore it's, it's most tax efficient. And then here the assumption is that you will have additional sort of incoming cash flow from somewhere else where you can then kind of reallocate to the same perhaps direct indexing allocation to replace that exposure to S&P 500 if that's what you were tracking and then the cost basis there would be much higher because so 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 if you can combine that with gifting and then again with the assumption that you have additional cash flow coming in then you know some of these concerns can be um, less of a concern um, but, yeah, that's really interesting. I, I, hadn't, I hadn't thought about the gifting thing. Like when you combine those together, that's actually a pretty powerful combination. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's yeah, it's sort of then, you know, then I think of it as kind of like win, win, win for everybody. Um, but again, I, I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily think that that applies to everybody. Um, right. There will be some cases where you just kind of want to be doing lump sum investing and then hope that that lasts. But um, that won't be as effective in terms of tax efficiency as combining with gifting. I want to shift and ask you about factor investing. That's kind of our bread and butter. And, you know, you wrote a really interesting paper because one of the things I would criticize myself for in my career is I'm always trying to optimize things. You know, I'll go crazy with these fancy optimization strategies. Yep. And at the end of the day, I'll realize like the simplest thing I started with was probably better than any, you know, any optimization I came up with. And, you know, you wrote this paper, how inefficient is the one over end strategy for a factor investor? And, and I think you kind of got at this idea. So I'm wondering if you could just talk about what you found in that paper. Yeah. So, um, we kind of what what drove us to you know write that paper to begin with is that uh, first of all fact there is a dis sort of a dis difference between what some some in the um, industry as well as ac you know in academia do refer to as factors and what um, factor strategies are uh, more generally available to the kind of the broad based um, investment public so. What we mean by that is, generally speaking, um, the most popular, popularly available factor products are long-only products. And um, generally speaking, they also tend to be kind of a, there's a there, there tends to be a distinction between factor investing in large cap space and small cap space. So we just kind of want you to acknowledge that there are those kind of real world implementation differences when it comes to factor investing to begin with. And then the way, what was also important to us was that the last 10 years, you know, with an explosion of all of these sort of factor investing vehicles, um, we kind of felt like there was really no viable benchmark for how to actually measure, you know, your allocation 
um, two-factor investing. So that's that was kind of the genesis for the paper. And then what we did in the paper was basically we kind of um, set set out to work to combine um, different to kind of like test different optimization strategies, as you said in the beginning, Jack. So um, we took mean variance seriously, but but also not literally, uh, and made sure that you know we would only consider, for example, portfolios that um, portfolios made of factor strategies that are only kind of like realistic that people would actually put money to. Um, in other words, we didn't really think about um, complicated kind of long short strategies using factor funds. Um, so, so we consider that, and then and then um, another kind of common strategy is uh, minimum variance strategies. So we consider that, and then um, and then as you kind of mentioned in the beginning, there is a one over one over n strategy, just the simplest of all strategy um, that we we considered, and then what we found. From the paper is that um, one over n strategy actually works surprisingly well um, in both large cap space as well as small cap space, and the couple of reasons for that um, is once you actually account for the transaction costs um, that kind of eat away at the factor premium that you know we know, then it actually hits momentum factor um, for obvious reasons a little more than, uh, basically reduces that premium a little more than the other factors. So quality and value, those are the other two factors that we looked at. And um, that's number one. And the other one is factor kind of premiums are not terribly easy to predict. So if you one were to kind of use an arbitrary, well, let's look back and then just use 10 years, you know, worth of average uh, premium to then kind of guide us in terms of um, how much we want to allocate over momentum um, relative to value and quality, for example, then that strategy turns out that, you know, it doesn't really work terribly well. Um, that additional kind of information, you know, one feels that one can get out of uh, looking back um, doesn't work terribly well because, um, and this is kind of related to another factor paper that I wrote, um, where, because, because factor returns in general are um, the factor premium kind of, is concentrated um, in maybe like one third or so of a you know of a given ten year period. That's where a lot of the overall average premium um, is accrued. So, in light of that, um, what when we looked at the one over n, one over n strategy just basically performed uh, much more steadily and robustly compared to all these other strategies that were kind of trying to basically read into the prior 10 or 20 years backtesting records um, and inform the portfolio construction based on that. So that's the kind of high level takeaway. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Like if you look at the value factor, that's a good example of what you're talking about. Because mm -hmm. if you look at 2000 to 2003, if you didn't own value from 2000 to 2003, like you've missed out on a very, very, you know, your returns over a very long period are going to struggle because it just came in such a short burst. Correct. As we kind of get towards the end here, uh, Kevin, I wanted to shift and talk to you about some of the research and work you've done around uh, retirement and financial planning. And one of the pieces, and I think this was out there recently in the media, was this research you've done on um, retire and relocate. Yep. I think you and some of your peers at Vanguard were looking at this idea that uh, retirees can move from maybe high cost states and actually use some of their home equity um, in to help fund their retirement. And then you actually had some numbers behind it in the terms of types of savings or the money that somebody might have access to yeah. if they actually did migrate from, you know, a state like Connecticut where Jack and I are in, which is a pretty expensive state for retirees yeah. and just expensive in general. Mm -hmm. um, and so just if you could talk to what some of the findings of that research paper were. Yeah. So that paper was motivated by um, kind of wanting to, we just wanted to understand the extent to which people were using their home equity. And it kind of came from the understanding that, you know, more than half of Americans um, don't have a ton of liquid retirement savings. Um, and yet they are still retiring. Um, and we don't, and then I guess the big question is that we don't really know how well um, and exactly what's funding, you know, those retirements. And you kind of you put the two and two together and then they start asking the question of where is that you know, retirement funding coming from. And the obvious candidate was 
housing equity. Um, and so that's the, the question then was, okay, how are people using it? And then the literature um, before our work generally points to the narrative that people don't move much in retirement. Um, and also people um, don't touch their home equity much, even in retirement, unless something dramatic happens where your spouse passes away or um, you know you have a health issue um, in old age. And then and then people actually start um, kind of dipping into their home equity. So we just thought that that story was not complete. Um, and again, it's one of those things where you just form a hypothesis and kind of go to data uh, to either kind of either support our thinking or um, to then or, or or disprove it. So so we that's kind of where we started. And then what we found um, to to a bit of our surprise was that um, actually a very huge share of people who are retiring between, you know, at the age of 65 um, are generally moving um, or a lot of them are moving, I should say, not, not, not everybody. Um, and then of those who move uh, non-locally, about 60% of them are actually uh, moving to a cheaper place. So if you kind of like do the math and add up how how big this can be, um, it turns out that about um, one out of four retirees in a in a ten year period could be kind of going through this um, this as in like you know potentially moving to a different place upon retirement. So the typical example we have in mind is you know moving from Boston to Florida or Connecticut to Florida, um, and um, the typical savings. Um, again, this is all estimate because it's all based on average home price and we're not exactly observing the individual um, house prices uh, associated with this move. But the typical saving um, is, you know, on the order of about, about $100,000. And that, um, again, this is kind of coming from the entire uh, population. So $100,000 um, compares to should be compared to about two hundred fifty thousand dollars of retirement savings. Um, you know, a typical retiree has so it's it's a very significant um, amount compared to uh, the other retirement funding they have at at disposal. And then obviously on the higher end, um, it's a much higher um, number. So that's what we found. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's you know an important thing for a lot of retirees to be considering, um, especially if they, is, they are in high tax, uh, high cost states, mm -hmm. um, especially those that don't have, you know, much in retirement. And there's a lot of people out there like that. So um, I think that's an interesting piece of research. Um, I also want to ask you about the work that you've done on safe withdrawal rates in retirement. So you kind of looked at these uh, um, what safe withdrawal rates might be under different return assumptions, different market environments, whether or not a bear market starts when you first retire. So I was just wondering what some of your conclusions were from that research. It's an interesting topic. And it's also, I think, one of those topics that just kind of get a lot of attention every time there's a bear market because, um, and I think just that's just a testament to what we have, you know, what retirement in America has become, which is it used to be that it was very defined benefit-driven, um, defined benefit-based system where people didn't have to pay attention to the ups and downs of the market. Um, whereas now, a lot of people actually have defined contribution-based accounts and they, um, in a way, have a portfolio to uh, manage risk of, manage the risk of, um, even in their retirement. And then what we found is that to the extent that people have, people are generally just withdrawing from an investment portfolio, then you have a trade-off between not wanting to um, withdraw too much because that basically eats into the, you know, the the longevity of the portfolio itself, and therefore potentially could be, you know, putting your um, retirement stability at jeopardy, versus not drawing enough. Um, out of concern that, well, if I am um, really concerned about the longevity of the portfolio, then you know I will be just be very conservative um, with with the withdrawal. So, so, so that 
I think is um, the trade-off that that a lot of the retirees uh, potentially face with their investment. And that trade-off is also um, arguably heightened most um, if you retire and then all of a sudden the bear market hits you. Um, so that's kind of described in our paper called the um, safeguarding retirement in the bear market. And there is really, you know, most retirees, if they don't have a lot of uh, buffer in their portfolio, then they're really between a rock and a hard place because you thought that you you had you a certain amount and you could withdraw a certain percentage point and that would be good for your retirement. And all of a sudden that, that portfolio is down 10%. Um, and then every dollar you withdraw in that point at that moment is actually worth a lot more than um, you know, a dollar you would withdraw in other times because the expected returns on that um, portfolio that just took a hit um, in terms of losses is higher uh, because you're in the middle of a bear market. So what we find is that um, generally speaking, it's not a good idea to be, um, you know, with withdrawing as um, casually or, or as steadily as one had planned in those moments, that it's a good idea to actually try to protect your portfolio uh, during that time. And to the extent that um, they can maybe adjusting their consumption during that time um, is also another very important um, thing that we'd recommend people do. So that's number one. Um, another kind of related thing that we've looked into um, on that topic is as we're anticipating certainly lower return environment going forward, um, and you know, this is kind of coming on the back of having uh, gone through a very healthy return period. Again, maybe we don't, it doesn't feel like that after a year and a half of kind of bear market, but um, it certainly was up until, you know, the end of 2021. And if we look back the sort of a post GFC uh, return environment, it certainly was a wonderful time to be an investor. So coming out of that environment, and as we look out um, with the outlook of, you know, how is the retirement, um, not retirement, return environment going to be um, potentially shaping up, um, the return expectations are not terribly high um, compared to especially what we are used to. And in light of that, the question is then, okay, given given that, and we're not talking about just a bear market here and there, but we're talking about a decade-long um, return environment. If our expectation is that stock market returns not going to be as high as what we are accustomed to, then what does that say about um, the sustainable withdrawal rate for retirees who will, again, have to balance um, withdrawing withdrawing a comfortable amount, but at the same time also protecting the longevity of their portfolio? And what we're uh, finding there is that um, it, you know the viable sustainable withdrawal rate in a low return environment um, will be certainly lower than uh, 4%. Uh, maybe it'll be more um, kind of aligned to 3% range. And, um, you know, that number could be even lower still if there could be, uh, if we're thinking about a more of a downside sort of a um, return environment scenario. I thought it was kind of good in the paper too. You know, a lot of investors hear about this 4% rule. So you can withdraw 4% of the portfolio down each year. And with a balanced allocation, you know, probably there's a chance you won't, won't run out of money. But you kind of pointed out in the paper that, you know, there's all these different types of investors. And, you know, it's not like it's the same safe withdrawal rate, like for everyone. You really need to understand kind of where you are, the probability of success, the type of investor you are, and kind of mold the safe withdrawal rate around uh, sort of you as an investor. It's not the same for everyone. It's not like every investor has 25 years uh, or 30 years of life expectancy after retirement. Um, and it's not like every investor has um, only that investment portfolio um, to look to for retirement funding. So everybody's different. Um, and the housing paper that we just talked about, you know, retire and relocate strategy, um, could be part of that big picture. Um, everyone's in a way different and their composition and their sources of retirement funding could be quite different. So there is certainly that need for a customized thinking. And, and really these numbers, whether it's 4% or 3% or 2%, um, is really just the, um, you know, one of 
probably several building blocks um, in thinking about you know, what makes um, a good retirement and withdrawal rate. So we like to end all of these podcasts with a standard closing question, and that is based on your experience in the markets, if you could impart one piece of wisdom or teach one lesson to your average investor, what would that be? Um, this is something I may have said earlier. I think the the um, there is a lot of wisdom to be gained uh, and extracted from kind of looking back at the history and just from an investment standpoint. Imagine that you're kind of living through that area era. Um, imagine that you're living through that kind of period as if you're doing it in real time. Um, and kind of almost like anticipating how you would react um, in especially market-defining um, moments and being prepared for those. So one thing I think that we all can be sort of a certain about having lived through even, you know, whether it's 10 years, 10, 20 years, 30 years of the market environment is that there will be times where, you know, downside risk um, will it'll look like downside risk is kind of like all we see. Um, and there will be that temptation to then um, to want to react to it um, in a way. But then if your investment plan um, and practice hasn't been sort of like grounded in your philosophy that is actually really deeply rooted in that understanding of what these, um, what I would call tail environments feel like, then I think that the sort of a downside risk of um, doing something, you know, reacting to that in a sudden way um, that is not prudent only goes up. So being prepared for that downside risk um, environment and kind of really knowing um, yourself, um, I think, I think is actually probably one of the, one of the most important things to be able to actually realize and experience investment success. So it's, I would just call it maybe guarding against your kind of worse uh, self in in those moments. Very good. Thank you very much, Kevin. This has been this has been great. Really appreciate your time, and uh, all the best. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.